trigger warning. This program contains discussions about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse as recounted by adult survivors from their childhood experiences. The purpose of this program is to promote healing among survivors of childhood sexual abuse, primarily with men. Some of these discussions, however, may trigger past trauma. This program also includes explicit language. And then, you know, I have to explain, you know, in, in painstaking detail, uh, everything that sort of happened, um, even to the point where I had to demonstrate, you know, they gave me your dolls and I had to demonstrate to the, the um, jury of, of what was that, what happened, why I entered this space is to be another advocate, another voice for others, right? The voiceless um, to, to help empower others to know that there's someone else that that's out there that that looks like you, that speaks like you, that has experienced similar emotions as you, who can go out there and advocate for themselves and, and change the trajectory of their life. Hello, I'm Craig. And I'm Laura Word. Welcome to our live program discussion focused on male survivors of childhood sexual abuse, sponsored by the men of Voices Beyond Assault. As most of us here today, Lowerg and I are also survivors. Voices Beyond Assault recently started a men's division because we understand that men's voices are not always heard. And we wanna amplify those voices, empower them to heal and provide resources that are needed. We're so glad all of you could join us today for this important discussion. At that, let me introduce our guest today, Lieutenant Darius Havavehi. Darius is a survivor of sexual and domestic abuse by his parents. At the age of four, one of his teachers discovered he was being abused. At that point, Darius was removed from his home and sent to the first of five foster homes. During this time, Darius was forced to take the stand in a trial to convict his father of sexually abusing him. Between the age of four and six, Darius was part of this judicial process that resulted in his father being sent to prison until Darius turned 21 years old. The trauma Darius experienced from that trial was compounded as he, as him being moved from foster home to foster home, resulting in Darius to question his very existence. But Darius ultimately, ultimately persevered, mostly through his own determination. And he now joins us as a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, having graduated from Purdue University. It is a story of triumph, and we will focus on today, and we are very honored to have you join us today. Thank you, Darius. Yeah, thank you, thank Darius. You so much for Welcome. Yeah. Welcome to the program. You know, we want to focus on your healing journey during this program, but it's, it's important that uh, in order to look at the future, we look at the past. So Darius, uh, tell me what is the earliest age you remember being either sexually or physically abused? Uh, the earliest yeah. age I can remember at least being physically abused was you know, age between two and three. Um, so I, I just definitely remember my uh, birth father, he'd come home from work and I don't know, he'd be in, in a mood for some reason. And then I would just get physically beaten with you know, his hands or belt or, you know, whatever objects he had around him. Um, never really understood what was going on. It was sort of just kind of the routine that I had to go through. 
You know, this is this is amazing. I don't think I've ever talked to a survivor is that remembers um, the abuse at such a young age. I mean, what do you do? You remember what did you think was going on? I mean, it was it, you 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 had to not even understand anything about what was what was happening to you when your father was abusing you. Yeah, I was definitely uh, confused. I mean, you know, I think inherently, or as humans, we we are very emotional creatures, and and uh, just something didn't feel right. Um, and so I, I constantly had these thoughts at, at that young age of you know, why why are these things happening? Um, and you know, more so the the physical abuse. You know, like why why am I being subjected to so much pain? So a lot of times I kind of blame myself. Like, did I do something wrong? Um, you know, did I upset uh, my parents? Um, you know, why can't I reach out to anyone uh, for for help? But it wasn't until you know there was a car that pulled up in front of the the daycare that you know we didn't recognize. I didn't recognize. And then you know I I just remember that a lady walked out of the car. She was wearing like a you know like very formal attire, like the the things you would see on like TV. And then uh, it was moments later where my things were packed up and I was motioned to be to go into this car and, and that was it. Um, and at the time period, I felt scared because like my brother was left behind there and you know I never had any idea of what was going what was happening. And you were four years old. I mean, I can't even imagine how how confusing that must have been. And yeah, it was it's still pretty vivid for me. I mean, yeah, four years old, but you know, just because of the the gravity of the the moments that were happening uh, during that time period, I mean, it, it's just stuck with me, you know, 20 plus years later. Um, so, you know, this is discovered, you're taken away by services. And now I'm assuming there's a, there's a period where the, we start to shift into this trial process. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and what that was like for you? What was your feeling? Yeah, so that first day was just a, a swirl of, of confusion, like a, a whirlwind of, of mixed emotions, right? Um, as, as scary as it was, for some reason, my initial instinct was like, when am I going home, right? Despite the fact of like the abuse and everything else happening, but, you know, just being in that confusing, uh, traumatizing moment, I, I just want to go back to what was known for me. Um, so after leaving the daycare, I was taken to what seemed like a medical facility or something. Um, and I was just being examined. I felt like a lab rat. Uh, you know, blood tests were being done. You know, they they had different tubes in me, um, asking me a lot of questions, and so I, I was kind of just going through that process. So that alone was was traumatizing for me, because no one was really explaining what was going on. Granted, like I don't know how you explain that to a child that young, um, and so, you know, what seems like ages later, um, I'm told that I'm going to a new home, and I. I don't know how you explain that to someone um, that that concept I, I feel is pretty foreign to, to everyone. Yeah. Um, and so I just remember being taken to this random house um, in this other part of the island that I've never been to. And then, you know, told that these are my new, this is my new family, which, you know, again, strange concept. I didn't like, I, I was very confused. Uh, very scared and and at that point I, my wall started closing around me because I, I just didn't know what to do so how did um so then so were you did you stay overnight in a hospital and then go to this family or was this all happen in the same 24-hour period 
is the same 24 hour period. So, wow. So you went right, right from this, this discovery as a, as a four-year-old from this discovery to the hospital or doctor and having everybody asking you questions and poking and prodding you to going to a new home all within the same day that that's just had to be so, um, so difficult. Do you still think about that today? Does it ever haunt you that, that feeling or that, that, that uh, that vision of, of what went on, even though you were four years old? Uh, to this day, I mean, I don't really, I'm not really affected by it. I mean, you know, every now and then, especially when I, I do these kind of things, um, you know, I'll, I'll have those memories flood back, but the emotions don't affect me anymore. Just, I've gone through, you know, 14 plus years of therapy and, and uh, you know, a long healing journey to get to this point where I can outwardly and, and publicly speak about it uh, to others to kind of share you know, the raw emotions and, and how I've overcome that. So, um, but because the the memories are so vivid, you know, I can still kind of think back to, even though some images may be fuzzy, but the emotions are, are kind of still there where I can still kind of tap into what younger me was kind of going through at that time. Well, then, then, then um, but I just- Two years you went through a trial. And, and so now you're, mm -hmm. now you're in a new family. You have to get used to that. When did the trial begin and, and what, what was that like for you? Yeah, so I entered this uh, new foster home and it was essentially what felt like, you know, within the first couple of weeks, minister to, to go to therapy, right? It's just, it was kind of part of my, my records that I was required to go to at least weekly therapy. I think at that point, I was probably going two, two to three times a week. And then on top of that, I would be meeting with the legal team, um, you know, at least once or twice a week. Um, and I would also be meeting with my social worker. So it was pretty much all hands on deck to get as many, as much details out of me um, so they could start building their case. And so, you know, I was going through these sessions where initially also my, my birth mother was sitting in on some of these sessions. So that, like, I just felt, I, I couldn't, I felt scared of being judged by my own birth mother just because I've attempted to let her know what was happening. And I just never really got that reciprocation of like, you know, I hear you, I feel you, and, uh, you know, I, I want to be here to be your safe space. Never got that from her, right? She's my mother because, you know, she physically gave birth to me, but that's, like, kind of all I see her as. And so going through these sessions, um, it, it just felt like really being exposed, right? Like, I'm under a spotlight, and they want every single thing um, out of me, you know, teaching me how, you know, I, I take to the stand and and, uh, you know, getting my rights read to me and, and swearing over a Bible. I mean, they taught me uh, through this, you know, for for about two years. And so in between uh, that time period before the, the actual large case in front of like a jury, um, you know, I had some other closed door sessions with just the judge and, and my, my legal team to kind of, you know, make sure that the judge can at least hear my side of the, the story before, um, you know, proceeding further. Yeah, and again, when we talk about this, all of this going on sounds overwhelming for an adult, but you were four, between the ages of four and six. It's it's just incredible to even fathom. I can't even fathom that. And I was still going to school too. Yeah, just trying to trying to be somewhat normal, right? And get used to a new family. Wow, it's it's really uh, amazing that you survived that. It's a lot. It's a lot for anyone. Um, 
And that's, you know, so much is happening for you. You're placed into this new environment. You're just going through this entire process. And can you take us through a little bit of like what that first foster home experience was? Like, did you feel safe in that environment? What was your like feeling towards being in this new place? What were your feeling towards like the, your other like new family members? So this first foster home, I remember showing up on my first day and I'm told that, uh, so there was three adults that were in this household um, and the younger adult is like the legal guardian or the foster parent. And she lived with, she, t- she was taking care of both of her parents. That They were elderly, probably in their um, early 70s, something like that. And, and uh, I think she was like in her probably like early 50s. And so they had already like a set of foster children. So I think at the time it was probably probably four or five foster children and then me so I would make you know number five or six I can't remember and it's just strange feeling because like you know despite how my parents were um you know that in my in my head right those are my parents and then I have a brother and now I'm told that this family is now my family um so it was really strange for me to kind of go in there with everything that had just happened you know the morning uh, prior and, and you know everything that kind of transpired immediately afterward to be in this household and so I remember um, you know awkwardly trying to introduce myself to some of the other siblings and there was a, a pretty large age range between us so I was the youngest and then some of the siblings were like in middle school um, and I think one of them was just about to enter high school so there's a pretty big age uh, gap between us um, but I think just having that shared experience of pain, eventually I was able to kind of bond with some of my siblings because they understood um, at least the the raw emotions that they felt when they were going through early um, because some of them have, you know, at that point in time been in the system for like 10 or 12 years. Um, And so I kind of had, I felt a lot more safety between like my siblings than with my actual legal guardians um they were they were quite verbally abusive um you know if we you know let's say i i don't know said a bad word or something or i don't know just random things that kids will do right just because we're, we're growing and we're learning how to um you know be be good young children uh sometimes our our guardian would make us stare at a wall for hours on end right without even going to the bathroom like timeout is what they called it um sometimes i would get chili pepper water uh squirted in my mouth if i said something wrong or if i disobeyed um so i mean you know this is like the early 90s so this is kind of how life was in hawaii um so i I guess it was pretty normal so i did get Mm -hmm. you know abused you know spanked with whatever she had on her wouldn't stick slippers hands like belt um just you know if i was misbehaving i never really so, felt i could oh sorry go ahead no go ahead no i was gonna say I, I, I don't think i ever felt like i could open up to how i was feeling inside because granted uh being our legal guardians that that doesn't mean they always have the complete insight as to what brought the child into foster care it's very high level for them from what i understand it's like this is years oh, wow. later that i i knew this but they have some sort of inkling of like you know this child has physical or something but they don't really get the details really it's your therapist and your social worker that have a lot more details at least from my understanding i haven't gone through it 
Um, and so I never really opened up to my, um, the adults there as, as to like what happened to me and like how I'm trying to process that and, you know, trying to learn how to control my emotions, you know, so I, I definitely did act out a lot. Um, and I was, like I said, going to therapy, you know, at least two times a week, but even then, um, it was pretty surface level for me. I never really felt, I think I felt safe with myself to share what happened. Uh, cause I felt like it was going to kind of consume me. So I kind of kept things inside and, and, and then fully, uh, open up with everything that was happening. Cause like dealing with being in a new family, dealing with going to these legal proceedings and, and, and going to school for the first time, like one, going to school for the first time as a child, like in a normal house setting yeah. was already yeah. like a big thing, but then, you know, I'm in like an unfamiliar house and then also going to school for the first time. So it was just kind of a lot. So I kind of just, um, shut down at least for my first, uh, two years. Um, so how long were you in this uh, first foster home? Yeah, this first home was about four, almost five years. So we were talking about the last day in court. Yep. Uh, so I just remember the, that morning, um, just feeling extremely anxious, extremely nervous. Um, you know, my, my, my legal team, they're, they're trying to coach me behind the scenes to kind of keep me calm. Uh, you know, my social worker and my, my therapist are just kind of um, reassuring me that you know, we've, we've been practicing this for, for a couple of years now and, um, you know, just, just go up there, just be truthful, just share what happens, right? You, you've shared it with us before and, you know, I get my rights read to me. I swear over a Bible that I'm going to, you know, tell the truth and then, you know, I have to explain, you know, in, in painstaking detail, uh, everything that sort of happened, um, you know, during the time you know, up until I was four of, of everything that was happening. Um, even to the point where I had to demonstrate, you know, they gave me dolls and I had to demonstrate to the, the um, jury of, of what was ha what happened. Um, oh, wow. So that was, I mean, that's kind of why they prepped me for so long, just because that in, a, in of itself, like you're reintroducing trauma. Uh, so that was one of the most uh, difficult things I've had to do to date. Um, and then at one point, I remember, I don't remember if it was uh, one of the other lawyers or if it was the judge himself uh, told me to point out my birth father in, in, in front of me. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it uh, just because like I suppressed uh, the image from me. So I, I just physically, like he was literally probably 10, 15 feet in front of me and I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, so after I came out of the, off the stands and everything was done, um, I wasn't there in the courtroom when the uh, the judgment was made just because the, the team wanted to get me out of there because I was triggered. Um, but I was told by the team afterward that my birth father was going to be put in prison until for 15 years or until I turned 21, whichever came first. And after I got back to my my father's home, I like my, my insides came right out. I just I couldn't handle all that pent up uh anxiety and 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 emotions and so i just it, it finally came all out i was just relieved that i was done why did you leave your first foster home yeah so the the trial was done so at this point it was i was in first grade uh i think in the first like the fall semester of first grade um and so at that point like i, I finally had like a sigh of relief like 
all right, this this person that did really bad things to me is is going away, right? Like he's he's going through um you know the, the justice system, right? And so I think at this point I started to feel I could open up more and bonds more with some of my other siblings. Uh, you know, I felt like maybe I can be a normal student at school. So I, I just started to kind of be a kid again, right? Just a little bit, just just started to open up, um, kind of let the walls come down just a little bit to connect with others. Um, but of course, like at, at this point in time, I didn't really know how to regulate my emotions. So I, I would have outbursts every now and then. Um, I was getting getting in trouble at school. So I'd be in the principal's office um, pretty frequently. And, you know, I would have altercations with my foster mother. Um, and again, like I would, you know, get put in timeout. I would get, you know, like hit because um, I'm being disobedient or whatever. So this kind of went on until my first half of third grade to the point where at one point she um, had told me that she was possibly going to have to moved me to a different home because she was telling me that there's a certain quota of foster children that she could have in her household. Like, I don't, I didn't mention this before, but so when I first came in, there was five to six siblings. At some points it kind of surged and we had 10 to 12 of us living in the home. Sometimes we'd come back down to about four. So it kind of fluctuated every now and then. Um, but over the course of, you know, about the four or five years I was there, she just mentioned to me that, you know, I would, potentially have to move to a different home just because of like how things were. She said, like, did she say it in a threatening way or was it just conversational? I mean, it, did she say it when she was disciplining you or what? Uh, most of the time it came out when she was disciplining me, like as a, as a sign of a threat, like, you know, I can kick you out whenever you want, whenever I want kind of thing. Um, and so, I mean, that was, that was just pretty routine. So the final day- so you, so you didn't feel very safe, did you? You didn't, you still didn't feel safe. The trial's over, the abuse is over. Do you, when do you get to feel safe, right? Is that what you were, I mean, you, you did not feel safe in this home not, because she's threatening to get rid of you at any moment and you don't know where you're gonna go, right? Yeah, so I didn't feel safe with like, you know, the adults, which, you know, is ironic, but I, I did feel like I could open up to some of my other siblings. Like so, some of the ones that were in high school when I was uh, young, so I was, you know, eight, nine years old, um, I could open up to them a lot. Um, you know, they would take me around. They they kind of sort of raised me in that household. Um, and, you know, what was my last day there, which of course at the time I didn't know it was gonna be my last day. I got into a really bad altercation with my foster mother. Um, she was threatening to remove me from the house. Um, and then, you know, I just remember getting slammed into the fridge and I got cut by a picture down my cheek. I grabbed my school bag and I walked to school. Um, went through my normal school day. And then I remember coming back home. All of my stuff was on the porch. My social worker was there with her car and, and that was it. And I was getting kicked out. But again, like I was told before that it's because they reached their quota of foster children. There was another car that pulled up and there's two younger kids that went in there. I later found out years and years later when I was in high school that my my uh, foster sisters at the time, one of them got back in touch with me uh, through a mutual friend. And, uh, you know, we kind of caught up and she told me the reason why you were removed or kicked out was because they wanted more money from other foster children. They weren't getting as much from you, quote unquote. So that's mm -hmm. the reason I got kicked out. 
I don't know how this whole foster system works. So tell us about your second foster home. After I get removed from the first foster home, uh, I am told, you know, I'm going to be going to a new foster home, uh, you know, a new family that can take care of me. So at this point in time, I, like I said, I, in my first foster home, I was going to therapy. I had like that assigned therapist. When I get to this new foster home, I'm assigned a different therapist. Um, and I, I also moved to a different side of the island. So I know like Hawaii, very small place, but for me, like going from one side of the island to the other is like, um, you know, a big, big journey. Um, you know, again, a lot of unknowns and, and a lot of unfamiliar places. So entering this first foster home, I remember I was getting dropped off by my social worker. And I think maybe not on the same day I was getting there, but maybe a few days afterward, my first therapist came to kind of talk with my new foster parents. Um, and so I remember hearing that my foster mother at the time, which again, I'm super new in this home, probably there about a week or so, she had asked them, you know, why, why don't you consider, you know, becoming his legal guardians? Because I, I've known my therapist and, and her family for, you know, since I entered the system. So it's been about four or five years. Um, and at the time, you know, they're probably in their like early 40s, maybe mid 40s. They didn't have kids of their own. Her husband was an architect. They're, they're pretty well off, right? Um, and, and they said that they didn't really have intentions to have kids of their own and that she just wanted to help give back to the community and, and you know, be a therapist to children like me. Um, and so it was kind of left at that. And my, my new parents, right, super uh, welcoming. Um, you know, very great. This was people. your second, your second uh, foster home. They were super welcoming. Did you stay yeah. in therapy? Because she was your therapist. They were your therapist. She was your therapist. Did you stay? In so I wasn't therapy? in therapy, not with her anymore. So I had a new therapist that was assigned to me, also that was welcoming. I would say, and uh, you know, he's known my new parents, like new family, uh, for for a number of years at this point. Um, and I think when I was entering, there was already four siblings, five, there's five siblings already. And then I was number six. And again, in this household, we, we did fluctuate sometimes. I think at one point I counted, there was 15 of us. And then, you know, it would come back yeah. down to like four or five of us. But, but in um, the second foster home with your mm -hmm. former, was it, were you the, you were the only one, were you? Or, that's or what I'm going to get to afterward. That's that's home okay. number three. It, it gets yeah, like I said, it gets gets a little confusing. Um, so this second home was 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 good. So I count the time periods of when I was in different homes by the grade I was in. So as I mentioned before, so I just finished up first half of third grade in my first. So I was coming to the second half of third grade in the second home, and you know I started, you know. One of my siblings, we had a shared interest in basketball. So we would go to the local park, we'd play basketball all the time. So that was kind of one of my outlets uh, was basketball. Uh, we were also very into Pokemon trading cards. And so, you know, I had a, a collection at that point. And, you know, so we would bond over that. So I could bond with, you know, at least one of my, my new siblings. Um, I just remember at first I felt like really embarrassed when I first showed up just because, um, again, like new situation right unfamiliar people uh you know for me there's no safety net in this circumstance at the time because i don't know anyone and so i shared a room with it's going to be one of my new brothers and i just i was crying like in the middle of the night just i was just overwhelmed with so many emotions 
Um, but you know, he didn't really say anything the next day. And, uh, you know, we sort of just kind of hit it off on, on trying to get to know each other. Um, so I felt comfort in that, um, going to my new school again, uh, like every new kid, you're, you're just going to be kind of overwhelmed with, you know, like who could potentially be your friends, right? Like how's this new, the, the teacher is going to be like, you know, just generally like, are you going to be accepted, right? And so that's kind of what I was going through in this circumstance. But over time, like of the, about one year between third and fourth grade, I started to make some friends. I, you know, was bonding pretty well with my siblings. And all while this is happening, it turns out my first therapist went behind everyone's back went through the training to become legal guardians and then told my therapist and told my social worker and then my, my foster mother at the time that they're going to take me away. And they had already had the paperwork signed, everything was approved, but of course no one had a say, especially me. And I'm 10 years old at this point. Um, and so that was traumatizing for me that. So that's, could, you like, left, you were pulled out of the second home now? I was just pulled out of the second home because they're like, Hey, we are going to be as his parents now and so that was just like a you know a confusing situation for everyone involved right like no one everyone was blindsided by the situation my foster mom tried to reassure me and try to make the situation a little lighthearted and say that you know they come from such a great educational and financial background that you know they could probably provide a lot more for you than than you know she could because um my my foster mother in that home didn't come from the, the greatest financial background, but she did have a great heart. Um, so she just tried to reassure me that things are going to be okay. Um, and uh, I didn't really have a say in the whole situation. And so I just had to go with it. My stipulation was that if I'm going to get removed again in the middle of the school year, because now this is time number three that this is happening to me, then I want to finish school at this current school for fourth grade. And then for fifth grade, they can send me wherever the heck they want. Um, and so that was the agreement we made. And I was moving again to the other side of the island. And so uh, while I was finishing fourth grade at my new parents' house, I would wake up at like four in the morning so I can get to school by, you know, six, six, seven o'clock. So, so, so now you're in the third foster home. You're going across the way to school. And, and how did that, how did that work out? You you this was your therapist also this was your first therapist so this was my first therapist and then I was told that I was not going back to see my second therapist anymore so they removed me from therapy the thought process oh, so you were removed like, from therapy completely at 10 years old yep. only four years after the trial ended yep. uh and in six years after the abuse that you were experiencing you were taken out of therapy and you're mm -hmm. you're in your third foster home. So, um, and and how long did that last? So, um, while I was finishing up the fourth grade year in this in my third foster home, so one what was kind of triggering right off the start, like you know, big red flags. That of course I didn't know at the time. Uh, I was told that I was not allowed to talk to my other siblings, right, for my my second foster home, which. Oh it's difficult to do when I I'm going to the same elementary school school yeah months. same school yeah and and a few of us were, were only like a year or two apart like we're we're pretty much like in line as far as like age levels and I was the the second to the youngest so there was a bulk of us that were all in the same elementary school and then like my other two siblings were in middle school and we would always meet my 
our, our parents, you know, from our sec my second home, you know, their current home at this big tree right outside of the school grounds, like at the end of school. And so I was also getting picked up there and now that I'm in my new home, but I have to stand away from them and not talk to them because, you know, they didn't, they didn't want me to get brainwashed, quote unquote. Um, and then I wasn't allowed to go talk to the same friends that I had. I was like, this, this just doesn't make sense. Like, I, I don't understand what's happening here. Um, I was told that I wasn't allowed to, you know, play basketball anymore because it's, it's a dirty sport. Um, and so, you know, slowly, you know, the, this new family is trying to mold me to who they perceive what I should be, right? Um, and, you know, because there was a lot of ways that I was trying to have my outlets in terms of how do I process my emotions and, you know, basketball being one of those, you know, some of the friends I made, you know, being another uh, way that I could kind of open up beyond myself and all of these pillars that are being taken away from my life. So I started to kind of shut down. I didn't have an outlet at therapy anymore. The thought process was that she's a therapist so she can do it and be a parent at the same time. She's never been a parent before. Um, those are two different roles. Like you being a therapist yeah. does not mean you're a good parent. You being a good parent does not mean you're a therapist, right? Very separate roles. Um, and, and I'm 10 years old, right? With, with these kind of thoughts in my head. Um, and so how long were you in that, that foster home? Uh, so I was in this home for about a year. And so after I finished fourth grade, they were told, they told me because I'm, I'm half black, half Japanese, right? They told me that they would send me to a Japanese private school so they can kind of acclimate me to my culture, which, you know, I thought, you know, this, this is great. I've never really been exposed explicitly to my Japanese culture. Hawaii does have a very extensive uh, Japanese heritage there. Um, so I'm around it, you know, all the time, but to explicitly be like in a classroom to learn Japanese, learn about the culture, the arts, you know, the literature, like I thought that would be a great experience. So that I was super grateful for that they kind of thought of that. Um, but again, this was kind of forced upon me. It's not like I really had a choice. I was just told that, hey, this was going to happen. So I took the the, the pre-test and got accepted. And then, um, you know, was told, you know, there's a specific set of curriculum that you have to go through. So you're required to do an art class, you're required to take, um, you know, a sport, you're required to play an instrument. And so I was dictated by my foster mother, like, hey, you're going to play the flute because she used to play the flute. Um, you know, you're going to, um, you know, take these specific sort of sports. So one of them was tennis, never played tennis in my life. Um, and so like life started to become like very regimented for me. Um, you know, I had to wake up at, at this specific time, right? They would um, set an alarm. I had to go to bed by a specific time, you know, they would just come in turn the lights off. So like life became very regimented. Life became like, you know, this is, this is the box that you're living in. Um, you know, these are the, the guide rails that, that you have to live your life by essentially. Um, and so I started to rebel a lot. Um, I wasn't just used to all, all of these things being forced upon me. I couldn't really feel like I could be myself. Um, so there was a lot of contention there. Um, this went on for the first six or seven months like this, like constant contention to the point where it started to seem that they, they really couldn't handle it anymore. And like, obviously I couldn't handle my own, my own emotions either. And it was, you know, towards the end of that first semester of fifth grade where they sort of told me, you know, after their, the, you know, the, the fifth grade class, they would take an annual trip from Hawaii to the East coast to kind of, you know, for American history, like that's 
the, the history topic for fifth graders in Hawaii. And so they, they said, after this trip, we're going to have a trial period of you out of the house for a week at a different home. We're going to think things through. And then, you know, we'll kind of reconvene from there. Which again, foreign concept. Didn't think one, I didn't think parents can take a break like that. Um, I don't think that's how real life works. Um, and they explicitly came into this scenario to legally adopt me, right? So like you you made a conscious decision to take a child into your home and take care of them. So I don't think there's any givesies backsies, but you know, uh, that point aside, uh, I was told that. I'll be in this home temporarily for a week and then, you know, you'll come back and we'll go from there. A week goes by and this is now my fourth home and all my things show up on the porch with my social worker. And, you know, there's no face-to-face, -face, there's no phone call from my parents that said they were gonna adopt me. And, and that was that. I was just sort of dumped uh, into this new environment, uh, this new home. Um, your fourth, so now, your fourth uh, foster home, and you are now still. Are you ten years old? I'm still at this ten. Point? Yeah. So I, I uh, just finished that first half of fifth grade. This is like the winter break time period um, that this is all happening. So right around the holidays, um, and now I'm in this new home uh, with a woman that is uh, a single parent, uh, you know, single foster parent, and I'm the oldest sibling now in this home. So to kind of give everyone context of like everything I've been going to up to this point. My first foster home, I was one of many children, right? And I was somewhere in the middle um, towards like the younger side. And my second foster home, again, one of many and towards the younger side. My third foster home was an only child. And then now this fourth foster home, I'm the oldest of four total. Uh, the second oldest being four years old, two year old, and then uh, like, a, like a baby, like so now coming in at 10 years old, I'm, I'm supposed to be like the responsible like child, right? Um, and up to this point, like all my sessions in therapy, I didn't really fully come to terms with all the emotions that I was feeling. So I was still kind of going through my own uh, healing journey. Um, were, you, were you put back in therapy when you went to this fourth home? Yep. So I was back into therapy with my uh, therapist that I had in my second home. Okay. Um, told my social worker, I don't know. She, but this this home was out. this fourth home was probably the worst one, right? In in, in a lot of ways. Um, in a lot of different it, ways, I would say, yeah. Yeah. Um, can you, it, you attempted suicide three times while there, right? Yep. Uh, you told me this. Um, what led you to that? those attempts at, at a, and how old were you then when you you were there at your fourth home for how long uh just about six months uh, i was turning 11 so 10, 10, to, 10 to 11 is like the time period i was there um and so it wasn't like just this home specifically that led me to like um you know attempting to take my life but it was like the culmination of everything that's happening at this point right like now i'm moving uh to to my fourth home i'm going to my fourth elementary school um this new strange foreign environment i haven't really processed everything that's that's happening right especially i, I didn't really process like what happened what transpired all before i turned four years old I, I still haven't dealt with those emotions even though i went to court for it 
that didn't mean I healed from it or or the fact that I accepted it, right? Like I stated the facts to the to the judge and the jury, but that was that. Like internally, I didn't process that. So I'm kind of dealing with all of that, and I'm bringing this to this home. Um, and so what kind of was the tipping point for me? Uh, so one, I was going to now a new elementary school, and then this one particularly, uh, I was getting bullied. Right, I was just being made fun of, like you know, fifth graders, right? Like the kids will be kids, right? Is what people say. Um, but, you know, I guess children don't really realize like the effect of what they're saying and, and how that can affect others around them. Um, so I was being picked on and bullied at school because I was like the new kid. I, I wore glasses at the time. I, I started wearing glasses at, at uh, third grade. Um, and so now like, I'm just one of those kids, like Harry Potter was like very popular back then. So like, I just got made fun of a lot. I'm dealing with that at school and I don't really have anyone else to open to open up to about it like in my household because you know everyone else is super young and then I couldn't really talk to my birth or to my foster mother. Secondly there was a lot of responsibility placed on me because I am the oldest child in that home right so it's inherent apparently that I am the one to take care of all these other children right like feed them put them to bed change their clothes shower them like all these things um, to putting to context, my foster mother in that home, she would work extremely late nights. Um, and so after she'd go to school, she'd go to work after I was in school and the other children would be put into like, I think a friend, a family friend's house or something. Um, so they would take care of them. And then when I came home from school, then they would bring them back. So I was still with these young children until, you know, from like, maybe four in the evening until like 10 o'clock at night or something until like our, our foster parent came home. And so I, I had that responsibility going on me. And then to kind of tip everything off, like my foster mother and I, we had contentions all the time because again, I was still dealing with a lot of emotion, uh, a lot of trauma. And so I would act out. Um, maybe I forgot to wash the dishes or I forgot to like fold the laundry or, or something, something random something very commonplace that a child may forget, but I would get blown up at it, about it. And so we would be arguing all the time. Um, and so just like these pent up emotions led me uh, a few times to, to take my life. So what um, had stopped me from- The third, time, the third time she discovered you, right? She, yeah. she and, and how did she react to that? I mean, she, she, she saved your life or were you in the process or what happened so the third time the attempt failed um you know the the rope snapped and i was just found uh unconscious on, on the floor in my bedroom in the closet and uh you know she was kind of hysterical at that point she she was freaking out um she i guess could see all of the culmination of the emotions i was feeling kind of encapsulated in that moment and she I think she finally came to her senses and realized like the amount of pressure she was putting on me um and so you know we we talked about it I talked about how, how I was feeling and like um all the pressure she was putting on me and the fact that like because she didn't know what happened in my childhood so she had no idea what I was kind of going through she just thought I was just some young 10 year old that was like in the foster care system but didn't necessarily understand like what led to that and so i think she started to kind of come to terms with that and and uh, we talked about it then and then from that day forward 
my thought process was that, you know, um, I thought of my, my brother, right? So I mentioned much earlier and my thought process, you know, being 10 years old was the fact that uh, I, up until this point, was able to live a somewhat normal life in the sense that I can feed myself, I can, I can breathe normally, I can walk, I can talk, I can express myself. I can go outside and, and feel the sunlight and play basketball or whatever. Um, and so those thoughts kind of flooded into my head and I'm thinking of my brother who from birth was placed into a situation that he couldn't control, right? Um, and, and, and just immobile from, from birth. And so yeah, thinking of that really broke my heart, the fact that I was about to just throw my life away. Like this chance that I have um, at life is, is precious. And for all I know, like we only get one life to live. And so from that day forward, I dedicated the rest of my life to my brother so I could live it so that, you know, for him to experience. And at that point in time, I didn't, I didn't hear from him, right? Like no one in this, in the system, like my therapist, social worker, no one, no one told me about how he's doing, or even if he's still alive. Um, because like, from what I was told that his rare brain disease was, uh, would have only allowed him to live until he was three. Um, he was still alive and I was in, in my birth home with him. I was four, he was five. Um, but now that I'm 10 going on 11, I didn't, I had no idea, no idea where he was or how he was doing. Um, and so that led me to never want to take my life again, no matter how bad life got, uh, it's not worth, uh, taking your life. Um, and not for like the sake of others, but for the sake of yourself, like you're not allowing yourself a chance to, to overcome and heal and, and change the, the trajectory of your life. And so that was like, the thoughts that I, I um, took deeply within myself. And did you, did you ever forward, get to see your brother again? Yeah. So I also brought that up to my foster mother in that home. And so I think, you know, it was like literally like the next, the following week that uh, she got in touch with my social worker and we went to go visit my brother and he was uh, alive and well um, in, a, in a care home, um, you know, also separated from our parents. And, uh, you know, just, just seeing him there, like still thriving in life, right? Like he was told by the doctors that he would only live until it was three. And here he is at 11, going on 12, um, you know, still, still just living life as, as best as he can, right? Um, and, he was aware yeah. of things. He did, was he aware? Was he uh, mentally aware? As a Yeah, he was mentally aware. So they, they would... Uh, these scans on him so like he he could respond to like if you're saying things to him I mean he you know they'll they'll measure the activity and they can see that he is responding to you um and like he recognized like who I am um and so just just to kind of be there and experience that and see him again for the first time uh you know just just meant the world to me and at the time so you got to that. talk to him you did you talk to him and tell him what was going on and how much he meant to you as as far as being an inspiration to want to live. Yeah, so I, I told him, um, I didn't really tell him everything that was happening, but I just told him like, um, you know, I, I want to live life as best I can uh, for you. Um, and you know, that you know, I love my brother and, and uh, you know, I, I just wish that he could um, live life like normally as well. Um, and I didn't know at the time, but uh, he did pass away when I was, uh 14 uh 15 so that was the last time i saw him when i was 10. it was uh it was a it was an inspirational moment for you 
Yeah. And that um, time period really transpired to what actually started my healing journey, or at least, you know, uh, yeah, started that process. I took it upon myself to to actually open up and in therapy. And so I told my therapist, like, this is what ha was happening. So at this point in time, I didn't really ex ex explicitly say out loud that I was, you know, depressed, that I had thoughts of suicide, thoughts of harming myself. Um, and I didn't have physical signs. Like I didn't, I didn't cut or anything. Um, I just did the actual attempts. Um, and I never told him up, up until this point. And so now I started to tell him what was going on. Um, you know, the fact that I was being bullied, like I had contention in the home. And so little did I know, like while I was opening up about that, uh, I was just wrapping up fifth grade. He had already worked in the background a way to get me out of this home, to get me to somewhere that I could thrive and, and have a chance at life, right? Put me in the proper environment to um, flourish because he, he saw the potential in me. Um, I did have a, a great ap aptitude for school. So for me, like my studies kind of became my escape. Um, I was reading grade levels above like the normal grade. Like in first grade, I was reading like fifth or sixth grade books. Um, and by the time I hit uh, fifth or sixth grade or fifth grade, I was reading like high school level books because I, that, was, that was my escape. Um, you know, I, I worked really hard at, at doing my studies just because I was constantly told that if you study hard and, and you work hard, um, you'll have a chance to, you know, achieve X, right? Um, and so that was like my way of of dealing with my emotions was just through academics and through sports. Um, and so while I told my therapist what was happening, he worked with my social worker and a legal team to get me placed into a different home. Um, so I could, uh, you know, he was kind of mounting, mounting the evidence of like, this is how he used to perform in school. And now this is what's happening. Um, and we have to change his environment for him to thrive. So he had to kind of argue in, in court um, to, to kind of get that situation uh, changed. And so it was like a few months later, I had just finished um, fifth grade. So it's like the summertime. And then I'm told by my therapist at one of the sessions, like, hey, you're getting moved back to the second home you lived in. So second home became my fifth home. And uh, you know, I was very ecstatic of uh, the fact that I would be able to be back in an environment where that was like the one home where like legitimately uh, and my, the parents were super welcoming, um, very understanding. Um, my mom now, who was my fifth home, um, has gone through a whole lot herself, right? She, she kind of had a very extensive journey in her own life. And so she really could reciprocate with us. And I was like the one um uh i guess adult in my life that that really understood did she um, have so a, did she experience abuse or or what? uh i don't want to speak too much for her own story but she has experienced a lot of very traumatic and tragic things in her life as a child up until even through her her adult years um she has 10 of her own children six step four or six birth four step and then at this point in time, she had five adopted. And then I was going to be number six. Wow. And she even had to like get a court plea and everything because there is a limit um, to the amount of uh, special needs kids that you could have adopted. Um, and she like got that waived. Um, and they were like, well, we'll let you 
uh, adopt him, but you'll get no state support money. She's like, I don't care about that. I just want to bring him home and uh, you know, help him in his life. She so. sounds like an amazing woman, and so she adopted you. She did. And now, did you finally feel loved and, and finally feel safe? It was the first moment where I never had the thought of, when am I moving again? Which a kid should not have that thought, right? Like, it's just a crazy idea for someone to have that, that thought process at such a young age. So it was the first time ever I felt like I could take a breath, right? I'm not going anywhere. I have a family. Um, I have people that are here to encourage me um, and help me with whatever I wanted to accomplish in life, big or small, doesn't matter. Um, and she didn't, she didn't care about like what we were going to go and achieve in life. She just cared that we were going to grow up and become good people, good citizens, like, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. Um, and, and that's, that's really all she cared about. The fact that like we had a, a chance and opportunity to, make our own decisions in life and, and take life where we wanted to. And so it was like the first time I could actually experience uh, stability in my life. Uh, the first time I could experience um, having a family of my own, of opening up to others. And you know that that's really what set the trajectory for the rest of my life. It was just like that act of someone looking at me and saying like, I wanna give you a chance at life. So this was a turning point for you and you went on, were you, did you go back into therapy at this point and uh, how, how did things go from there? Cause you, you, this was when you turned your life around, right? Yep. So I, like, like I mentioned, so I finished fifth grade and I got moved into like my now final home. The actual adoption didn't happen until I was seventh grade. Cause there's some, process time that, that occurs. Um, so sixth grade, I'm going to yet again, another uh, elementary school. So this is school number five at this point. Um, and so during that time period, I'm continuing sessions with that same therapist. Uh, you know, at this point, I've, I've known him for a significant uh, chunk of my, my life, which, you know, for me being that young, it's a majority of my life. Um, and so I started opening up to them, like everything, everything started coming out, uh, you know, to, to the early stages of my, of my past, to everything that kind of happened between. And he's just helping me rewire my brain. Cause at this point I had that victim mentality. The fact that like that mentality that I would never overcome what was feeling, what was happening to me inside. Um, and so he kind of helped open up the light to show that this was not your fault, right? Like as unfortunate as it is, sometimes bad things happen to good people, right? There's no explanation around it, but things like this happens. And so it was more important for me to not try to think of ways of how we could change the past because you can't, right? The past happens. Like right now, like things I'm saying right now, like a minute from now is the past, right? You can't change that. But you can change how you feel about it how you think about it and how you react to it and move forward beyond it. And that was like the biggest life lesson I've ever learned in my entire life. Um, Cause that allowed me to 
removed this weight and guilt that I felt for some reason. Like I, I felt guilty that I was abused, right? I shouldn't feel guilty about that. That's that's not my issue. It happened to me, but you know, how do I move past that? Um, you know, I felt guilty for like the whole situation that put my my birth father in prison, which again, like I don't know why I felt that way, but I just felt that way. And so he kind of had to help me unpack all of these emotions and all this entanglement um and and help me kind of think and feel differently and just realize that like this is my life to live and that like I can build the future that I I envision um and so you know it was very he he, he was down in the trenches with me um to kind of help build my uh path and vision for for how I wanted my life to transpire like my foster mother who became my adopted mother also down in the trenches with, with each and every one of us to, to help find ways that she could better support us. Um, she also would go to therapy sessions on her own just to see how she could be a better parent, um, wow. which I, I was really grateful for because she even admitted, I mean, she raised her first set of 10 children um, who are much, much older than us to put into context. My, my oldest siblings are between the ages of 50 and 66. Um, so they're they are much older than than the rest of us, and uh, of course in those those early days and like you know the the mid fifties and sixties, uh, she you know parenting styles back then were, were very different, and so she admitted she had to learn how to kind of rewire her style of parenting so she could better take care of uh, children like us, especially with uh, you know a lot of our different pasts. And uh, you know, own versions of trauma and, and uh, is your emotions. is your mother still around? Is she still around? My, my mother's still around. She's uh, eighty three this year. Just turned eighty three wow. about two weeks ago. She sounds like uh, I feel like I should. Is she Catholic? I should write a letter to the Pope about her. Uh, she sounds like a saint. I mean, what she's done for all these kids is quite incredible, and it just shows you the importance and and your therapist too. The importance of finding that right people those right people in your life especially as children that really uh can impact you what what are your thoughts about the foster system uh today you know i mean because it really kind of failed you for a long long time and you were just lucky enough uh to get the right people or do you not feel like it failed you do you think it's it's a good system i mean it's I don't know. It's hard to hard to believe that, but what are your thoughts on it? So this is going to be a very difficult question to process. Uh, this is also one of the reasons I stepped into this space uh, pretty late into the year last year. Um, you know, I've, I've been in the Navy now for about seven years, going on eight, um, and you know, at, up into this point, like I've I've gone through my healing, right, um, and so. I wanted to come into the space to be able to share, you know, the experiences that I've had and how I've been able to overcome, um, you know, that that sort of past. Um, so I, I come in more so as an advocate for other. Um, I guess the terminology is foster alumni is what they call us. Uh, I'm still trying to get used to all the terminology here, um, and and that could be those that either aged out of the system or, or those like me that were adopted to a family. And having met one of, one of my earliest foster sisters when I was in high school, 
I thought I had a different idea of how that foster home went and she had a very different experience. And I later found out that her and her sister, their, their birth related, uh, were being abused sexually by the father of the legal guardian in that house. And so that just altered my reality for what my experiences were in that, in that foster home. Like that was not happening to me, but it was happening to a lot of my other siblings that were there. Um, but then to come into this house where I got adopted from, I mean, you know, you're looking at, at a parent who started, who already raised her own set of children and started foster care when she was in her mid fifties. And at a certain point in time, had 40 or 50 children come through her house that she had some sort of impact on their life to the point that we would be at a grocery store and some random person would come up to my mom and hug her and be like, hey, auntie, it's great to see you again. And I'd ask her like, hey, who was that? And she was like, oh, like I, um, you know, he came to my house so like for a few months, like 15 years ago. I'm like, what? like wow, like, the impact, to see the impact that she's had on our community uh, is, is very inspiring. So that alone gives me hope, but the sad reality is that's not the case. That is not the norm. The norm, unfortunately, is a lot of people who enter into this space. Um, there, there's, a, there's a population of those that are motivated by the, the money and the support you get from the state. And very unfortunately, it impacts a lot of the lower income population um, because you know, there, there's that, that motivation of the monetary aspects when it comes to being a foster parent or legal guardian. And that's just the unfortunate truth, like to just be very completely blunt about it. There's the other circumstance where people have some sort of like saviorism about being a foster parent. You know, I'm doing this because this is good for the world and I get to save these kids. Like, no, 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 you're not saving kids, right? That's, that's not what this space is about, right? Um, and so unfortunately, there's not enough people that are there just genuinely wanting to provide love, care, and support. Like that, that's literally, that, that's what it needs to be. It's, it's definitely not an easy um, experience being a foster parent, having seen how, how my mom has, has handled it. It's, it's definitely not an, an, an easy space to be in. And uh, I think that just needs to be respected, right? Um, and I think there, there just needs to be uh, a better screening process of, of people coming into this space, you know, a better educational process about all that's happening. Um, because it's not all just they come in, get the training, adopt a kid, and, and that's it. That's where the healing happens. Like healing does not happen at, at adoption. It did not happen for me at the court when, when the physical papers were signed. That's not the end all be all. And so I think that sort of discourse and dialogue is not talked about enough. And so that's like my raw thoughts on, uh, on, the, on the foster care system. Now I can only speak to my own experiences and really for the state of Hawaii, uh, where I'm from. So I don't know how it is in like across the nation. And, and that's why I entered this space is to be another advocate, another voice for others, right? The voiceless um, to, to help empower others to know that there's someone else that that's out there that, that looks like you, that speaks like you, that has experienced similar emotions as you, who can go out there and advocate for themselves and, and change the trajectory of their life. And so that's what brought me into this space. So you, you went from high school 
where you were really completing your healing, you went into the um, the uh, ROTC, and um, and then you um, went to college as part of the ROTC to Purdue University, achieved great things. You decided uh, then to well, you kind of had to, right? I guess because you stayed in the military uh, as part of that program. But now you're your obligation is completed long ago, like what, four years ago? And uh, uh, about three years ago, three years ago. Yeah. So you're still in the military. Now, I just want to uh, uh, touch your during this time, your father, you turned 21. Your birth father got out of prison. Um, but you you don't have any contact with your mother and father. And I, we had talked about this, your your birth mother, you found out took the father back um, into her life. And uh, after he was out of prison, um, that's correct, right? Yeah, um, so I can back up and provide some context for sure. the folks okay. here. Um, so in middle school, when I got adopted, I was seventh grade. I was told by my social worker that my grandparents had been looking for me. My grandparents on my birth mother's side, so my, my I'm half Japanese, so my Japanese side of the family have been looking for me for years, right? We're talking over a decade. Um, and your so- birth, This is your birth mother's family? Birth mother's family. And they live on the- birth father's island. family- uh, Birth father's family, nothing to do with them since before the court case. So I just right. never heard from them ever since. So my birth mother's parents live on the island of Kauai, right? Another island in, in the chain of Hawaii. And, you know, they, they wanted to at least talk to me on the phone or something, just, just to kind of hear that I'm okay. So my social worker asked my, my mom, right? And she asked me like, hey, do you want to uh, meet your grandparents, right? Um, my, our, your social worker found them and you have an opportunity to reconnect with them. And I was very curious because I had very good memories of them in my head. I remember visiting them, like flying to a different island to meet them. And so I said, yes, let me meet them. And so I talked with my grandfather on the phone. Uh, we caught up a little bit. And at that point in time, my mom bought me tickets like the next weekend. This is like the summertime to fly up to, to see them. When I flew up to see them, I did not know at the time that I have a birth sister. When you're younger than me, um, so literally same blindside. mother and father, same, same mother and father. So at one point in time, uh, to kind of give context, so like I said, my, my birth father went to prison when I was six. If you do the math, I was uh, uh, seven or eight by the time she was born. So however how that worked out, there was some time period where I guess he was out in parole and whatever. Uh, so my my sister was was uh, born. But this was beyond, like, no one told me about this while I was in the system. So this kind of uncovered naturally uh, when I met my birth grandparents. Um, and so I'm at the airport meeting my grandparents. And then, um, you know, they, they tell me that I have a birth sister. I was just like, wait, what? Uh, who is she? Where is she? Like, you know, I'm, I'm just asking all these questions. Um, and the following month or so, my birth sister was flying up to meet my grandparents. So I flew back out so I could meet her. Um, we were living on the same island as well, but I had no contact with my birth mother. Um, and so I got to meet my sister uh, in Kauai. 
And then fast forward two years, right? So I'm entering high school. My birth uh, mother is moving to North Carolina. So she, she's taking my sister with her. Um, and so uh, I only got to meet her like maybe three or four times uh, during the summers uh, up on the other island with our grandparents. And then you know, my sister moved with her mom to North Carolina. During high school was a time period where, again, I still had no contact with my birth father no contact, my birth mother. Um, and then I sort of tried to keep in touch with my birth sister, just like physical letters. Um, and it was like also the time period where I was still going to therapy, but at this point in time, it was optional. I kind of liked it because I had like some third party person that I could talk to about anything. Mm -hmm. um, because he told me like when I started high school, he was like, hey, you don't really need to go to these anymore. You're, you kind of... Um, gone through the the wickets right like you're you're displaying a positive trajectory and and like your mentality your outlook on life but i told him i just like having another friend to talk to like, i got really close with him i've known him at this point in time uh over a decade um and i still deep down inside didn't get to the point where i could have like forgiveness in my heart right i was still kind of wrestling with that and so I knew I still wanted to work on that in high school. So I remember turning 16 and uh, I told my therapist, I was like, hey, I, I, uh, I want to say like, I want to speak out like forgiveness to my birth parents for all that happened, not to their face, but you know, like just with, between closed doors, between me and my therapist and like a photo of like the one photo I had of my birth parents. Um, and so, you know, it, he kind of made it a very, powerful moment for me right if you guys ever read the book the power of moments if you haven't i highly recommend you read that um but he he sort of made it a very special moment for me um kind of like a, a little ceremony to get me to the point where i i was able to kind of speak out the words that i forgive my parents um and and that was like the last little turning point for the rest of like everything else that i was able to do in life was because i got to that point and i had true forgiveness like I have no hatred in my heart for all that happened like I I fully accepted that what happened happened and uh you know I, I don't resent my parents um it, it is what it is and I was able to turn my life around to beyond the expectations of many people there are so many people that had a lot of doubt in in what I could achieve in life and what I could do you know I, I've heard I've heard it all like I heard that someday I'm just gonna become a gang member or end up in prison or drugs or whatever i've heard it all um and he helped me get to the point where i could kind of ignore all that noise and just kind of choose my own destination in life um and so having gone through that experience of like all right, i got to true forgiveness um i wanted to also become a therapist so i can impact other people's lives like he has that was kind of the direction i wanted for he already alluded to the fact that i ended up in the military um, but I just wanted to give context on how I got to that decision. And so I told my therapist, like, I want to, you know, go to college and study psychology so I can, I can become a therapist like you. Um, but, you know, with the expenses of college, I want to join the military first because I was always mm -hmm. inspired by those I've met in the military that, um, you know, just that self-sacrifice for your, for, your, for your country and for other people, right? Even people you don't even know. Um, and so I thought of it as a way for me to kind of learn uh, discipline, to challenge myself beyond myself for others. Um, 
where on the other side of that, I would have the opportunity to go to college afterward, right? So I was going to enlist. And so initially I had uh, paperwork to, to go and enlist in the Marine Corps. Um, I brought that idea up to my therapist and to my career college counselor. I'm in my junior year of high school. It's about, you know, 16, 17 years old. Um, and my career college counselor was like, absolutely not, right? Because again, like I told you, I poured myself to education, right? So in, in high school, I started taking honors classes for my freshman year. And then I started taking uh, AP and IB courses uh, from my sophomore year up until my, my senior year. And I was taking more classes than was allowed for one to take, but I just wanted to kind of keep myself busy and, and focused on um, setting myself up right for, for what I could do in life. And so um, my therapist and my social worker came up with a plan to have me apply for the ROTC scholarship, which I didn't even know existed. Um, where I could one still serve my country in the military and then two still get the education that I wanted to do without having to pay out of pocket right that was my big stipulation I wasn't going to go to college and, and have to pay it I was either gonna find a way to get it paid for like via scholarships or or, or something um, or just go to college later right that was kind of my thought process and so they found a way of kind of mirroring this together right they didn't tell me like oh no that's too hard right like that that's impossible they found ways to encourage and, and, and push me along my journey so i was grateful for that so that allowed me to apply for the navy rtc scholarship um, i got accepted in my junior year uh, right before um, the summer before my senior year and then i applied to about 15 or 16 schools um, and i ultimately chose purdue uh for the rtc program it's very well known and then as part of getting the scholarship it was recommended that i study something in the stem field right so science technology engineering math psychology does not fall into that or it's liberal arts and so i asked my physics teacher if uh if i were to study something in like the engineering field what would be quote unquote the easier of the two because i struggled in physics and calculus in high school i got tutored I'd be at school till about six or seven o'clock at night, uh, trying to keep up and and you know get tutored for my for my fellow students and for my teachers so I can you know uh, keep keep moving moving ahead. And he recommended I study mechanical engineering, which I was like, okay, that sounds challenging, but you know it sounds doable. Uh, so I ended up applying to um, Purdue's uh, School of Engineering to study mechanical engineering. And then while I was at college, um, as, uh, as Craig was alluding to, I, I turned 21, right? In, in my junior year of college. Um, and during that year, I actually studied abroad in Ireland um, as, a, as a way of, I've, I've always wanted to go to a different country. Um, I, I walked into college with the, the motivation and desire to at least study abroad somewhere in the world. Um, ideally Japan, because I'm half Japanese, I, I've learned the language, um, but studying engineering in Japanese, very difficult. So I uh, ended up choosing a, a program um, to, to study abroad in Ireland. And so when I was coming back from my studies, um, a friend of mine, for some reason, uh, reminded me that my birthday was coming up. And uh, I, I just looked at the year and I was like, oh, I'm turning, turning 21 this year. This is, this is, uh, 
a a strange moment for me because we're most 21 year olds are, are excited about it. you know they get to go and have their first um you know legal beverage i was thinking of the fact that my father is going to exit prison um and so it was kind of a symbolic day for me uh to to kind of think of how far i've come uh in my life the fact that i was like in college which is very rare right like if people look at the statistics of foster youth um there's about 1100 youth every single day that enter the system of that 1100 children there's only 54 percent that graduate high school of those 54%, only 11% apply for secondary education. And of those 11%, only 3% graduate college, right? And here I am, like I'm at the, the um, going on my final year of college and you know, I'm pretty much at this, at the cusp of, of graduating. Um, and to think just how far, like I was that scared young little kid uh, going through hell on earth, right? And, uh, there were some times in college, like I, I wanted to quit. It was super hard. Like it, I was struggling in, in my in my courses. Again, calculus and physics, like super demanding. Um, the hours were long. I mean, I was up at four o'clock in the morning up until one or two o'clock in the morning, just at PT. Had, you know, I was taking 20 plus credit hours, which is pretty unheard of for college students. Um, I'm away from home, like I'm 6,000 miles away from home. I don't know anyone else there until I started to make friends. Um, so yeah, life got super difficult in college, but just seeing the resilience that I've had uh, within me, I mean, I felt like no matter how hard it got, nothing nothing was as difficult as, as what I've been through. And so that kind of kept me going. So when I turned 21, I just, that was kind of like that that so it was more of an inspirational time than a, a time to be feared. Your father was getting out. It caused you to reflect at how far you've come and, and the success that you had in life. And that's amazing. Exactly. And so we only have a couple more minutes. I want to ask you what what's uh, what's in store for you. And I, I know you're married. Your wife has encouraged you. She's the one who encouraged you to come forward and tell your story um what what's what's next what do you want to do going forward what's your what's your goals because you're still very young right you're what 30 uh yeah i'm just about 10 30 so yeah still, still very young yep um yeah so my my wife uh is is one of the ones who inspired me to kind of be on this journey so when i when we first met i didn't really tell her like all, all that I've been through. I mean, it's natural that people ask, like, when you first meet someone for the first time, is like, what's your name? Where are you from? And in either your third, maybe fifth question, people ask about how many siblings do you have? So when I answer that question, it immediately elicits a lot of questions, right? So if you're, if you ask me now, like, how many siblings do I have? And I respond, I have 17 siblings. That's gonna, you know, some people are gonna have questions about that. Um, and so whenever I, it's natural for me, like I talk about it all the time. And so she asked me one day, like, oh, how many siblings do you have? I'm like, oh, I have 17. Like just very casually, like just, just nothing different about it. And, uh, and she was like shocked. She was like, wait, why do you have so many siblings? And so that's kind of how those conversations started, right? Like I, I let her know I was in foster care and, you know, I've, I've lived in many different homes and, you know, this is like where all my siblings come from. Um, just kind of explaining like the, the, the hierarchy or our family tree is very complicated. And so 
um, over time, uh, it was probably right before we got married that I, that I mentioned that I was like physically abused and, and whatnot. I didn't go into like super details. Um, and so over time, she's just kind of been uh, very inspired by uh, my story, right? For me, I just, I think of it as like, I'm just any other person in this world who has gone through diff difficult uh, trials and tribulations and, and uh, you know, made a life for themselves, right? Like just like anyone else would in my eyes, right? Like that's just my thought process. I'm no special than someone else, right? The way she looked at it was the fact of like, wait, but you, you're not, because I call myself like just another guy, just another dude. And she's like, but, but you're not like, you're, you're someone who has gone through so much and, and uh, can inspire other people if they, if they heard your story. And so um, I kind of came from it. At first I was afraid to kind of go out there and share uh, my story because I don't want to put myself on some pedestal, right? I, I'm no better than anyone else, right? Uh, we all go through our own difficult times in life. Uh, and so I wanted to come from a place of, of humility, um, a place of understanding. And so it took me a long time last year to kind of really build up that, um, the right thought process, the right mindset to to come to uh, a platform like this, especially this is the, my first live one. All my other ones are pre-recorded. I'll actually drop my, my link tree in the chat for other people if you're curious about um, hearing other aspects of my story, like by all means. Um, have different forms of media there to explore um and so i really owe it to my wife to, to encourage me to do this i still keep in touch with my therapist i've known him for over 20 years now to the point that you know we're just friends uh you know he'll call me up whenever i'm home in hawaii visiting my family he'll take me out to dinner take me out to lunch and we'll just hang out um for the past year and a half now um i've gone into real estate investing so that's something else I do. I have a, a, a small business investing in commercial real estate. Um, and my wife and I have a goal to achieve financial freedom. So that way we can work on what we're truly passionate about. So I'm actually in the process of transitioning out of the military. And then, you know, both of us are, are building our, our businesses and, and uh, we want to get to a point of financial freedom. So we have the choice to do what it is that we want to in life. You know, we want to travel the world, right? Um, you know, I have a goal in the next five years to visit 50 different countries, um, cause life is short, right? Uh, I told you that my, my birth, my birth, uh, brother passed away when, when he was just 15. Um, and, you know, just kind of seeing my parents who took very, very care of me, uh, are so much older in life and, and, you know, their, their health is, is not where it used to be, right? They don't have the same strength that they used to. And, and because of a lot of the sacrifice they they made in life, they they didn't get a chance to go and experience uh, the world. And so I I want to be able to get to a point where I have the the options to be able to do that. Um, but more importantly, then I would be able to be an advocate uh, for this space. Um, and I want to start a mentorship for other foster youth um, on learning about financial education, financial literacy. Uh, financial independence, learning about health and uh, physical fitness, um, and, you know, just help others find ways that they can, you know, take charge of their, of their own lives and, and have a chance at going after their dreams, right, to not be afraid.
to attempt new things um, and kind of just you know put yourself out there in, in a in a good way to impact your community. And so, you know, that's that's really what we envision our, our our life to be in the next few years. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today and sharing your incredible story of triumph. Um, it's it's truly inspirational. Thank you, Darius. And thank you all survivors out there. It, it's your courage that gives all of us strength. Thank you. Thank you. Aloha. We'd like to thank you for joining us today for this important discussion. For more information about this program and other programs from the Men of Voices Beyond Assault, please go to our website at www.voicesbeyondassault.org. If you found this podcast helpful, and we hope you did, please let us know by liking it below. And to all of you survivors out there, remember, you are not alone. And together, we heal. Thank you. Tomorrow, too late tomorrow.